everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. My name is Tasneem Chopra. I was born in Kenya, in Nairobi. I'm about fifth generation East African born of Indian heritage, North Indian, Gujarat. But I speak really bad Gujarati, so don't ask. I've been in Australia since I was four. I grew up in country Victoria in a town called Bendigo. It's in a very parochial times. It was a very, I was like the brown pea in the white pod all my childhood, all my high school. Moved to Melbourne, thankfully, in my teens, because I was just yearning to be in the cosmopolitan centre of, of Australia, at how I saw it at the time, which I loved. And I think all these, you know, hyphens of country Victoria, Indian background, African-born, Muslim upbringing, they just kind of geared me towards a career and an interest in diversity. And I think that's informed my interest in anthropology and sociology and psychology, which I studied as an undergrad. And then I worked in development sector for some time. I've always worked in community welfare as well, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes in a paid capacity. I think over the last 15 years, I've sort of cemented a consultancy in diversity, equity and inclusion, which is a new term. People didn't understand when I told them I was a cross-cultural consultant. That was too much for them. But essentially what I do is I work in the space of identity, belonging, racism, interrogating structures of power, who has it, who doesn't, how to be more equitable in the way that we lead inclusively, especially in leadership. So having grown up in, I will say, the late 70s and 80s in, in Australia, it should look very different the way that we lead and the way that we manage to 2021. I don't think the needle has shifted significantly when it comes to who populates leadership and who makes those decisions. So I think I'm really motivated by wanting to up the ante on that and say no, and not apologise for wanting to make a change and not edging around it gingerly, but actually sort of saying you need to be held up. You need to be held accountable for the fact that you're not representative. The fact that when you don't include people that you're actually setting out to serve and represent, if they're not part of your decision-making table, you're going to miss the mark. I always say this, we don't lack capacity. Mm, We don't lack skill. We just lack opportunity and platform about what those platforms should be and how we do have the talent to populate those platforms and just reinventing the pathways so that we don't block access, Mm. really. And the one thing people don't know about you. I'm a karaoke diehard. I don't muck around. I'm serious. If you're going to karaoke with me, we're singing properly. We're doing it. I can do this with you. Can we do this together? Because I actually yes. sing pretty well. That's so just, the first time you've admitted it. Just a karaoke level singing, though. I wouldn't go as far as, like, going on, you know, Australian Idol and shit. Like, I couldn't do that. Well, you never know. You never know where you go, right? I mean, I grew up, I mean, as I said, in Bendigo in a country town, but there was a sizable and busy little Indian community at the time. And I come from a family of three daughters, and we were the Chopra sisters. Okay. We were like an act, and I knew all the puppies are songs. I knew all the old Bollywood songs, and we would sing and dance at events. Oh so my God. I grew up, yeah. I don't know That's if a lot cool. of people know that, but yeah, I was had my little chotis and my little uncles. Oh. Indian songs drive me crazy as a child, but um, then I joined the choir at school and in musicals and stuff, so I've always loved it. Have you changed your opinion about the Bollywood movies you used to love? Because we were watching a Bollywood movie, and I actually <laughs> went to Bombay to work in Bollywood for two years because I was born and brought up in India and I was obsessed but some of the movies are like are shocking <laughs> in terms of uh, what they say about equality what they say about women in general and yeah. like Tropism. I love it is rich I used yeah. to love this shit yeah basically just to give you a general gist I have Pakistani parents I grew up in Australia was born here the only language at the time I even knew was the one we speak at home which is Memni which is like a mix of Gujarati and Sindhi yeah. but I did learn Hindi Urdu, which is through watching movies growing up, yes, with my mum. So I can speak it broken, but I understand.
understand it very clearly. Yeah, yeah. And so Sahil and I were talking and I was like, oh, I love this movie. I used to love this movie. I used to love this song. And we were sharing it all and we're like, let's have a Bollywood movie night. And so we decided to watch one of our ultimate favourite ones. When we watched it, we're like, this is atrocious. At the time we were like, oh my God, this is the best thing that ever happened. But then you grow up and you're like... Wisdom of hindsight, hey. Yeah. 100%. We're like... This is bad. And like the whole movie, one of the premises of the movie is that this girl who's very tomboyish is trying to hit on this guy who's like the popular jock. And Shah Rukh Khan comes into the college and tells her, you don't need to change for anyone. Yeah. Except 10 minutes later in the movie, she's completely changed. She's had a makeover and the guy's fallen in love with her. But also he drives her to it because she's crying over him going, he doesn't like me. And then he's like, oh, I've got just the right person for you. And he sends her off to this very beautiful feminine. Sushmita the same. He sends her off to her and tells her, can you help her out? And then the next clip, she's come out looking like a feminine. It's like Greece. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. It's like Greece. It mm-hmm. actually is like Greece. Mm-hmm. You've just described the Greece plot to me now. <laughs> yes. Kind of, yeah. But that's mm-hmm. the thing. And then they start, like, then he finally notices her. Now we look at it and we're like, hang on a minute. Like, at the time, I thought that was so cool. No, that's, like, wrong. <laughs> They're not cool. That's that's I, I not think, only wrong. That's yeah, terrifying. I think it, it's terrifying. Some of those, and people say it's about the old classics even. You need to enjoy them for the context in which the when they were made. I mean, I can remember some Indian films. There was something called Vidata and Anamikal that I probably watched a hundred times. And prior to that, there was the Pakistan stuff. I love the music from the old style. I loved the classical music. I still do. I still love that stuff, but I just can't get with the new Bollywood stuff. I don't watch any new Bollywood movies. Well, I, I don't watch Bollywood now because I can't handle the songs yeah. and the music. It's like, do they have songs? I can't watch it. So if it's just a film, and some of the films are fantastic. Yeah, some of them are oh, some of them are really, really edgy. They go. I mean, the, the one that comes to mind is Pink. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. With Amitabh. Yeah, that was just about time, right? There's like that. That was really, really good, and it was so provocative and, and on point and challenging notions and all the tropes on sexism that that so much of the culture upholds. And and it did it with with some leading actors, obviously. So to have you know Amitabh on a, on a film like that means people are going to watch it. Yeah. Right? And that was either clever marketing or you know good to see that mindset is actually permeating. Actually, yes, that, I agree. That's a yeah. really good point, this name. So I was about to do a show at the Art Centre next week called Them. It's yeah, like, I've seen it advertised. It's not Michelle Law, no. No, who is it? By this amazing writer, Sama Sabawi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tales yeah. of the Sea. Yeah, yep. yeah, So this is her next production, Them, which was completely sold out. And we had a show oh. in Nari Warren yesterday and we got to know at, at four at o'clock. Drum at the Bunjil Theatre or something. Yeah, Bunjil Place. Bunjil yep. Place. Yep. Got cancelled. But we were having a conversation because the show is based in not specifically Syria, but that's where Sama kind of got her inspiration from. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the movie American Sniper because you referred to Pink. I was like, Bradley Cooper really had a choice to make at that point whether that story needed to be told mm-hmm. and what that communicates to the rest of the world that this guy has PTSD because he was lauded for killing so many people using a mm-hmm. sniper weapon, which nobody could compete against. So is mm. that really a story that you wanted to tell? And and it really pisses me off because people in that position of power can choose to make the content that's needed, which Amitabh did. And maybe it's really smart marketing as well. But having a big name like that automatically can help that same message be spread across a wider community that otherwise won't be able to. You're talking about power structures, especially in media. It's still yeah. so men-oriented. It is very much through male gaze. And I mean, speaking of that, the Bradley Cooper thing, I just don't watch his films anymore. If I do, I don't. I like, I'm very critical. I'm hypercritical. And it's a choice. 
you know, no one's putting a gun, literally, excuse the pun, to his head. He had the option to decline that, and but he didn't, and it's now stuck. Exactly. So two questions. One is, what do you think or what do you define as view of multiculturalism that you would want to see and if you have seen it in any other parts of the world. Second question is, day before when we were coming back to Melbourne, we did a show in Shepparton. I saw an article on the front page of The Age saying that it was an Islamic college, Islamic school, where the, the virus was forming a cluster again. And I thought if it was any other school, it would just be called a Melbourne school or a Melbourne college. But they did mention the Islamic college again, and I <laughs> thought that automatically just divided people. How do you see these big media conglomerates like The Age and Sydney Morning Herald? How do you think their narrative has changed or not changed? Because I feel it's still the same. And well, what's the best way forward with, you know, encouraging these big corporations to change kind of, the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, change yeah, the dialogue. Yeah, yeah. So two questions. I mean, these are big, really big, big questions. I, I, I can just remember the first question, which is who does multiculturalism really well? And my mind shoots to, I was in Toronto, and I noticed like the street signs in downtown would often be in like several different languages when it came to directing you to a particular site, if it was the, you know, the Botanic Gardens or to the museum or to the university or the welcome signs. They were all like multiple, like you had, you had Punjabi, you had English, you had French, you had Arabic. That's yeah. ace for tourists, you know, is, for nothing yeah. else. Um, but it's also reflecting that these are our major communities that we're representing, and so we care about that. We want them to know where they're going. We care yeah. about your well-being. That was really impressive. London for me, it was. It's just the presence of diversity when you flick on your screen and you see that from the local news. Who are the reporters? Who makes up the talent on your sitcoms? Everything from, you know, Men Like Mobin right through to some of the panels for comedy. There's so much more opportunity. And maybe that's also to do with the fact that South Asians in the UK have been there for much longer than they have yes. been in this country as well. So we're kind of a much newer entity in terms of how we navigate multiculturalism than Europe and than the UK and compared to the US. We've, we're a lot newer. But having said that, even though we are new, I think our communities haven't gone through as much of upheaval as the other communities have. So... You know, the West Indians and the South Asians and the Blacks, I mean, they've, they've endured such vile racism for centuries, much more than what we have. We still have it here, first and foremost, obviously, the Indigenous communities. And then, yes, we do have, and this link sort of segues into your next question, the media has certainly amplified the difference of minority communities when it serves them to do so. It rates high to talk about a black face or a brown face or a turban man or a hijabed woman because it's different, it's not us, it sells. You know, that, I think that's the bottom line. What is it? If it bleeds, it leads kind of story. And if you extract that mentality to the way that you profile communities, an average Joe Blow face is going to be a lot less exciting and have less traction. And it's not going to garner an emotional reaction unless it's of sympathy, then it will. But if it's one of fear, it's got to be someone that you can't connect with. You can be scared of a brown face because there's no centre of gravity between the two of you, but of a white face, you want to empathise with white tears. It's a very crude formula, I think. Some certainly play up to it, and I'm you know, not ashamed to say that Sky News comes at the top of that list when I think about their culpability in the kind of news that they perpetuate and the storylines and the headlines is, is all very much race-baited. I think the rest of the media is doing better than it did, but not um, enough. And the fact that you're reading an Islamic college title when they could have gone with Al-Taqwa College because exactly. the school is called Al-Taqwa Islamic College, but they went with Islamic College. Yes. Yeah. Marsh is a grammar school, but they didn't call it the Anglican school or exactly. the Christian school when they had an outbreak. So yeah, it can pick and choose. And it is a, like a Bradley Cooper scenario again, because they have a choice. 
have a choice about which decision they want to use in their title. I mean, I was watching a Dan Andrews presser yesterday in real time on Facebook, and I think when he, he mentioned Al Taqwa College, he didn't mention Islamic, but in the I comments that. it came up that it I was heard Islamic. that, and I was like, started, you did, oh, you did. They have no hygiene. Yes, they have, and I'm like, wow, what? that was it. That was that didn't take long, and, and suddenly there it started, and that was, I mean, that was on Facebook, and that was at ABC Melbourne. I didn't even check what the commercial stations were doing. You said news story. Is that an oxymoron? Should news be a story? <laughs> and I've always. Yeah, I think in this day and age, it's become that way now. I mean, when you grab is 150 characters or not, you you're literally at the mercy of who can, which copy editor, which sub editor can make the most banal and boring thing something exciting, and that means compromising the truth and often that's the first thing to be lost in a story the nuance is the truth because you've only got limited characters so we'll go with something scary something impacting take out the fact that at the end of the day they weren't actually a carrier they just contracted it and that's that's irrelevant because they actually have the, they actually have COVID and focus on that not how they got it it, it becomes a story and not a report mm-hmm. and that's something that's similar yeah. to the show that we went and watched what was it called again? Very interesting show it was on at the MTC called The Lifespan of a Fact it was about um, this child who jumped from the Stratosphere Hotel in Las Vegas from the top of the building and this essayist he was writing an essay on it but he wasn't reporting the, the actual facts. facts instead of 38 seconds that it took the person to fall he changes to a number because it sounded better so he took creative liberty mm-hmm. to make it sound like an article that would sell mm-hmm. they got like a fact checker but the news company that's actually publishing the article is also under financial pressure because newspapers aren't selling so they decide to publish this essay's article but they also get a fact checker who's actually really honest about his job mm-hmm. and he's a 24 year old who's really excited and enthusiastic and, and naive yeah well that's the thing you can get a fact checker to check your facts and they can uncover all the inadequacies and shortcomings in your report but if you don't action those mm-hmm. you can still say to the people we've had it fact checked and i think that's what the whole premise was about really it was to show that you know these things are always a part of every story you read and i think the reason it was kind of put together was to say don't believe everything you read you know there's mm-hmm. always going to be a bit of liberty yes Something we talked about earlier, which I think would be worthwhile touching on just because, you know, we were on the topic of it. I wanted to actually talk about Priyanka Chopra. She has a significant posting within the UN and it's something to do with goodwill or peace. And I thought, hmm, interesting choice. What are the qualifiers to get a role like that? You know, she's being Miss World. I mean, okay, does that mean she has a humanitarian profile? Is that what she's... No, she's an actress. She was just one of one of the one of the Bollywood ones, but she got into America. She got her foot through the door in the U, in the US in the same way that maybe someone comparable like Archie Punjabi. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, so Archie's made in the U, in the UK, and you know, Priyanka's penetrating the US market. Okay, that's their own thing. That's fine. Now, when she took on the US role, and I know there was a lot of people either love or hate her, Priyanka. It's, mm-hmm. it's one or the other. And then she married one of the Jonas brothers, and it was that, that yeah. just. Oh, that, that was an interesting move and so mean gold when that happened. But again, I didn't really know that much about her. However, when the Kashmiri incursion, shall we call it, occurred over two years ago now, and it was very clear that um, the Indian government just changed the rule overnight that allowed their forces to, to enter the area and suddenly the Kashmiris had no rights and they were cut off from the world and, and there was all this going on. And it was a directive of the Prime Minister Modi at the time. I believe there was a online video of a forum where Priyanka was speaking and an audience member brought up something to her about, you call yourself an ambassador of human rights, but, and you're very quick to defend and support and applaud 
given the your Prime Minister of India, given what has just recently happened, she called her out on it. And she was like, oh, you're mixing up my words, you're being so dramatic, you're this, that and the other. But she didn't detract from the fact that if she's in a position of human rights uh, representation, she has a responsibility to call it out. Yes, 100%. But she wouldn't call it out. So she's a UNICEF goodwill ambassador. And- okay, UNICEF, not UN, sorry. To, to be at that level, to be an ambassador of, of an organisation of international repute. And you do have an obligation to call out human rights issues. But she shied away. She wouldn't do it. She wouldn't touch it. She wouldn't go near it. And rather than use her platform as as a woman of colour from the Indian region to call out those human rights abuses going on, like Arundhati Roy, hello, not that you can compare them, she did nothing. And she minimised it. And she made it, she gaslighted the girl into thinking, oh, what a drama queen. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Really? That's what you're going to, that's going to be your defence in this situation. And then, and then people were booing the girl and saying, oh, we love you, Priya. It's celebrity. Celebrity. The core celeb. Celebrities become representative sort of goodwill issue, but do none of the work and what all of the the praise. You can see that. You can see that. And again, maybe younger people who are just caught up in the allure of it's Priyanka though, don't see that. Maybe intended to look back and think like we do at our Bollywood movies, right? That whole hindsight thing. I find that with celebrities, especially ones like her, her reputation as being someone who's obviously found it really difficult. Like there's been hardships for her to get into American Hollywood. And there's so much stigma, right? Like if you you think about how much stigma there is attached to being a Bollywood actor or actress, like with the Western cultures, there's a big divide there. And so for her to actually make it into Hollywood is a big deal for her. And she almost wants to keep that reputation without, you know, screwing it up. So she wants to be able to have her foot in both doors. Yeah, I think you're right. You You know, know, she doesn't want to mess it up by saying the wrong thing, even if the wrong thing can be the right thing to do. Exactly. But I think that if your values aren't aligned, then it's never going to work anyway, right? Like if your values aren't strong enough and they're not in the right place, you're always going to be that person that's like, you know, what am I doing what for? I, I, I totally agree. And, and it's that moral compass. And if you don't have activate your moral compass, then you're basically going to be taking on positions that you inherently disagree with, but you'll do it for the sake of money. Yes. I think I want to be the devil's advocate and, and okay. kind of flip it. Being in this industry, it is you know, penetrating the American, especially Hollywood, not so much the British television and film company, because that's different. And I absolutely agree with you, Tasneem, that somehow UK TV does it so seamlessly that they have representation, not as a tokenistic thing, they just know how to do it. And I'm a massive fan of UK TV. I'm not a big fan of Hollywood because I just feel it's a bit over the top. Never ever ever, like everyone's watching it and it's a great show, but I personally don't relate to it that much because a lot of it is bashing Indian parents and going Indian parents are really hard on us, Indian parents are really Mm. strict, blah, blah, blah. Trippy, very trippy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But how hard is it to not cater to, I guess, the white media moguls and kind of be a celebrity or be an actor in that sort of, in the being in the entertainment and media, like how hard is it to... Without conforming. Yeah, without conforming and still having your authentic self. Because I do think Priyanka would have had, like yeah. Yeah. she would have this uh, backlash no matter what. Yeah. And yeah. Tasneem, you being in, you know, being a cross-cultural <laughs> ambassador, like how do not only media companies, but even businesses now, like how do they deal with that? Like what's the best way for them to go about it without kind of not conforming to the white narrative? Yeah, I think it's not, it's it's not a seamless process. I think when you try to maintain or be true to who you are and uphold your values and ideals and cultural norm, 
at the center of what you want. You can do that. And you can do that, but often at the peril of a, of a gig and often at the peril of being understood or being often ostracized within, you know, the in-group, which could be work, which could be could be a board, it could be society. And you, you sort of want to, it can be really hard and it can be a very isolating experience. And then when that does happen, you do see some people, no, I wouldn't say capitulate, but just like compromise. Like, you know what, I'll, I'll change my name. It, yeah. they, they just can't get around it. It's too hard. I've tried. They just can't do it. And so you see people like giving up a little bit here and there. And if you keep chipping away at that, then you can completely reform. Yeah. And I think the difference between being worn down by the system versus deciding your culture isn't actually is a, is a liability that you despise. You can become a self-loathing Indian, and it depends on which which way you enter it. I think the difference though now is that in 2021, the, the allyship around being a diverse person in a white in a white industry has increased a lot more and it, it may not be in the workplace that you're getting that allyship it may be on platforms and podcasts like this where you can actually then bounce back and think oh my god i'm not alone this is not just in my head this is actually a real thing that we're all going through and there's so much solidarity in these spaces that i come back to them i come back to them after i've had like the whitest board experience of the day and i just like <laughs> I'm losing my mind. I just like I just want to make sure there is some logic out there. There are there are colleagues out there who understand what I'm going through and it gets me through. And I find it so much easier to be me and to be my whole self now than it was 20 years ago because of allies and and, and the way that they manifest. I think that's something which when you know about it and you can and you can rely on them and you can leverage that support even if it's an internal thing um, and also you seek it out I mean I've got a job in the public service now for a contract short term and whenever I'm on a zoom call and you see the person of color on the seats like you know we nod and there's like hey how you doing and occasionally there'll be times when the meetings offline will catch up like oh my god did you hear what they said because we don't have the luxury of being the dominant we are perpetually the minority I wear the minority badge with immense pride because yep. I know that that comes with decades of cultural nuance, expertise, networks, and capacity that they'll never have. They know that too. Whether they want to use that is my responsibility to make them realize how valuable that is. So that, that's part of my job, right? I do think increasingly employees are realizing that they, they want to be an employer of choice. They need to be much more inclusive of the diverse recruits that are out there, which means making space, which means making room, which means making sure you're not the only brown person in the office. It's going to take a while for us to get there and get it right, but I do think we're on our way. And the critical difference, I think, is the allies. The allies on the way. We've never had them before. And, I mean, I guess going off that, the next question for me would be that the hands-off by hijab protests that happened in France, especially when it comes to social media, we're talking about inclusivity a lot more than we ever did. However, there's also on the back of that this France thing happening where they want to ban the hijab. The whole connotation is that we're doing this because women don't actually want to wear the hijab, but how do they truly know that? And I guess, you know, why is it that we have this whole idea that a hijab is such a a non-choice situation that we are forced into when there are so many women I know that choose to wear the hijab in fact I know women that whose parents are like I don't want you to wear a hijab despite their families yeah 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 and you would know this name because everyone knows that you wear a headscarf as well is it a turban it is a turban it's a manifestation of my head head, anyway I've I've tried all different things this this one's stuck more than the others yeah but then having said that I have a daughter who doesn't wear hijab I have no one in my family except for my youngest child wears a hijab and she wears a proper hijab right like the proper thing mm. then there's me and then nobody else in my family at all did the old daughter decide that she wanted to do it yeah, she's very very strong-willed 
can't tell her anything. And she decided from primary school. She went to an Islamic primary school, I should put in context. So that was part of the uniform. Um, but then for high school, I put her into like the, the state school. And I said, you, you know, you don't have to wear it. You can relax. And she's like, no, no. Why would I do that? I want to, you know. Whereas my other daughter went to an Islamic high school. The older daughter had to wear the hijab. And after school, she, she's like, I'm not wearing this. This is not who I am. So I was like, okay. So they're both very, very different. And they're both in their 20s now. And they're both very sure of who they are and very self-confident. You have 20-year-old yeah, daughters? And it's different. Sorry? You, you have 20-year-old so daughters? Yeah. I would not have picked. I'm yeah. not your auntie. Okay. Not really. Uh, no, no, I don't, I don't feel like it. it. But, <laughs> but that's a very good point, and thank you for pointing that out. But why is there, especially in Western media, why is there that notion that somehow hijab is a forceful thing for women and women don't have the rights and that's why they're forced to wear a hijab? That's the whole thing. There's no agency in this conversation. The Muslim women are the last people that they actually ask. It's almost as if Muslim women are incapable of making a decision. Or either they're asked only ever about the headscarf, if they're asked anything at all. Otherwise, the whole debate around identity and dress is being decided for by either either Muslim men or the society at large. And that's the whole point. I think that's, when we talk about France, I mean, egalité, freedom, liberté, and blah, blah, whatever. There's no respecting individual's choice. And the, the fact that the state thinks it needs to be the arbiter to decide what freedom means for a woman and not the woman herself. Which takes is away it, freedom. It's like, is a big stock oxymoron. That is exactly the antithesis of what they consider to be freedom of secularity. And that is that you can't decide what you need, I'll decide for you. That to me is the biggest inherent flaw in that particular logic. And with the debate itself, the fact that, you know, we have Hollywood and Netflix industries obsessed with sometimes documentaries on the hijab issue, as if, you know, wearing a scarf or not making, wearing a scarf will be the difference between radicalization and not. How then do you define find how the New Zealand terrorist was radicalised. Yeah, exactly. And what I find really fascinating about everything is also the connotation that in order to be perceived as a free person, you are wearing less, being a bit more like promiscuous or very sexually deviant. You know, someone who wears less is the most free person, which I find really fascinating because I've never really thought about it until we've had this conversation where you've said idea of freedom is France saying, okay, we're going to make this decision for you all. But it's funny because the one thing that they're removing is more it's the freedom of choice. Yeah. There is no freedom of choice. I think when it comes to bodily, the bodily autonomy of women, whether it's how we dress or our reproductive cycle, right, it's constantly been the purview of states. Yes. You know, and men, particularly men sitting around tables deciding what we do with our uterus and how, how we dress. Like, I'm sorry, but that's, it's got nothing to do with anyone but the individual. Whether I decide to use birth control, whether I decide to wear the hijab or not hijab, or if I have a child or don't have a child, these are my bodily choices. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're being taken out of my hands, they're being politicised, they're being commodified. Mm-hmm. They're being commodified because it, it actually sells. It actually sells. And it comes back to the earlier topic about somebody who looks like me versus someone who's just like, you know, a blonde hair, blue eyes. I'm going to invoke a lot more questions and, and confusion because I don't look and sound like the norm. And therefore... You're not sure about me, so the best way to be sure about me is to police me. Yeah, just, I guess, going off the back of that, I think that the biggest problem is now the feminist movement, which there's an idea of what the feminist looks like and appears to be like, and it always comes down to the fact that she's more outspoken, loud, you know, sexualised person. And like I said, look, I don't have anything against that, but that's the connotation now for what a feminist looks like. And But it depends whose definition of feminism you buy. Yeah, on social media, that's kind of what you see the most of, mm. um, which I think is quite problematic as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be problematic taking your cues off influences. I really yes. do. There's just so much more nuance to it. I mean, and again, it comes back to how 
what informs your opinion of what a feminist is. For me, a feminist is someone who sees the full humanity of women. Exactly. Her right to health and education and safety and opportunity, the same as everybody else. Yes. Wherever they are on the gender binary, that's, to me, that's the baseline for humanity. And if feminism means equality, then then I'm a feminist. And I've always said that, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, Justin Trudeau can be a feminist and people just lose their mind. Like, how is he a feminist? But he says it, you know, that's what I am. Some of the best men that I've known who've sat with me, white men on boards in suits, will tell me that they're feminist. And often, you know, the other men will like roll their eyes, like, what? What are you saying? How can you say that? And I'm like, it's I accept the full humanity of women. 100%. And something that you've done is by giving this definition of feminism, you haven't bashed men. Yes. Which I find, it's an interesting time to be a man. It's a very interesting time <laughs> to navigate your way as a man because we are learning along the way yeah. that mm. we didn't have education. All our education about being a man came from other men, never came from from a woman. And that too, from white men. Yeah. And (laughs) my mother is, she's the reason I'm here today. So for me, I see women in the same light as I see my mother and Mm. she's everything to me. But Mm. then I was called a pussy because (laughs) I was slightly, I wasn't the guy picking up women and so funny. I overheard this conversation with a bunch of corporate dudes and we were all in a car. We had been drinking and all these guys were talking about is, you know, how that woman dresses like that. And, you know, it'd be great to get with her. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I don't I don't think like that. Is this something wrong with me? Or is this a general conversation that happens a lot of time? Because these were the average corporate nine to five guys. Mm-hmm. And I thought if, if you don't fit into that, you're considered too sensitive or you're considered yeah, yeah. like a man who maybe cares too much. And yeah. I don't call myself a feminist because I don't feel like I have to define it for the women themselves they have to define it for themselves but i think by saying that by giving that definition of a feminist it actually reduces male bashing and actually blaming other communities i think it throws a lens back onto the other though because being feminist means seeing the full humanity of women i'm asking everyone else to see that because i see it yeah i see the full humanity i see the fact that i want to live and work and 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 be educated and have a job and all those securities but do you see it Mm -hmm. so for me feminism is about you seeing that in me so it is throwing it back not just to you not just to a man it's it's about throwing it back to women and to elders in the community within the muslim community within the main community and stuff i mean even i mean and you would know that even within the muslim community when you tell people you're feminist they think oh that's such a western concept you're so that's not anti it's not islam i'm like well actually it is it actually is Islam. I see no conflict between saying I'm a Muslim and a feminist at all. To me, yeah. in fact, I actually, for me, if I want to get really, you know, ultra on it, I can't be a Muslim without being a feminist. That's true. Because I need to see my humanity. I need to see my sister's humanity. I need my son to be able to see that as well. And that's like a work in progress. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. And I think also another thing real quick to just add on to that, I think sometimes I find women are the worst feminists. They're the anti-feminists. Yeah. Does that, I know I know it sounds silly, but I find that women talk about this whole game of, oh, women supporting women. But then a lot of the time you'll go and work somewhere and you'll find a lot of the time women are bashing each other. I think on that, overwhelmingly, the, the biggest obstacle to women's achieving greater success is actually, it, it, it is to be, it is the patriarchy. But the biggest disappointment is women who pull the ladder up once they make it. Yes. And just, that's the biggest, that's the disappointment. Exactly. That is the bigger disappointment because the patriarchy is, we know it's disappointing. Like, of course. It was structured that way. It was structured in a way to keep us as outliers. Mm-hmm. But when women, and the few women that do make it sometimes will be the ones to say, well, now I've made it. See you later, girl. You do, you exactly. do it the Exactly. Yeah. That is, that's what breaks Fantastic me, so. point. And that's exactly, yes, you put it very well and eloquently as compared to what I was trying to say, but that's, <laughs> yeah, that is actually but what that's I mean. Why she, it's like, that's why she said we couldn't afford her. Yeah, that's <laughs> 
<laughs> She's like, I know this. Okay. <laughs> I get upset the most when people are disappointed with me rather than being angry with me. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I'm disappointed. I'm like, oh. that's what they said. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. And it's like, ow. Yeah, that dang, sucks. That's so true. It's like, well, I'm invisible to you. I can't see you. It's um, worse. It works with kids too. When you ignore them, they hate it. Or rather, you get angry with them. You just ignore them, and they just they just can't deal with it. That does bring up an interesting point, though. I see this a lot in especially white females and white women. Is a lot of the times they kind of take offense to things that they personally wouldn't take offense to. A lot of this narrative actually comes from, especially with wearing the hijab, and a lot of white women would say, "Well, we're taking away their liberties. They should be treated equally, and that's why the hijab is is a sign of oppression rather than." That. And it, it brings to my question about who gets to take offense because I feel like everyone loves taking offense these days. And is that the person who has individually experienced something? Are they the ones who should be taking offense? And if you are taking offense on behalf of a community, what's the best way to do that or be a spokesperson for that? Yeah, that's a good point. I have, this, I have a friend who, who made a comment about he was he was just lamenting some of the the wokeness in America in, in certain contexts. He goes, you know, some of these desi kids they think they're blacker than blacks and um, they're more black than the blacks and they're more Palestinian than the Arabs and I'm like oh gosh you know let everyone everyone it's not that everyone should all stay in our lane it's about it's about respecting everyone's agency on that issue and speaking for someone you know but allowing them to speak and I always you know again one of the things that I always talk about is stop speaking at communities and speak to them or listen to them and I think when, when we get so caught up on the work mobile we don't often stop and think about is this actually serving the cause or is it serving me and if it's serving your likes and your and your you know your analytics then dang you keep doing it right but suddenly when you interrogate the integrity of your actions and you realize that actually all I've done is promote myself and not the cause mm-hmm. and I've done nothing to shift the needle on the lives day-to-day lives of these communities that's and that's a very self-reflexive kind of action to take which doesn't always happen because people are young and they're excited and they mm-hmm. want likes and they want and, to be popular and they want people to follow them. But I think it comes from someone, maybe someone else, a, a, a peer saying to them, hey, dude, you need to stop what you're doing and think about the consequences and realise. And often they don't. They get so caught up in the momentum of it all. And it's true. I, when I think of some of the um, you know campaigns on the Free Palestine Movement or Aboriginal Debts in Custody, there's been so much good work being done on the ground in supporting that. Those are individuals in these movements and they've like they've just like taken on the personas. Yeah. In a very small way, what happens on social media is the fact that we're just sharing stuff. I want to seem like this person, therefore I'm going to share it because if I share this, people are going to think I'm a good person because I care about this stuff. But really, what are you doing to care about it? Yeah. I mean, it's good because it gets exposure. The cause gets exposure, which is is important in itself. But something you mentioned, which was really fascinating to me, is the line between free will or freedom of expression and then cultural appropriation. Very blurry, I think. Another friend gave me this classic quote, which I'm happy to share. And he said, the problem with the woke middle class is that they want they want the culture of the people, but not the people of the culture. Yes, that's very right. true. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Wow. Our food, our dress, our bindis, our, our whole frizzy hair, the big bums, the big lips, but just don't move into my neighbourhood. Yes. You know, because that's just a little bit too far. Give me that Hannah. Oh, my God, put Hannah on my <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I went to... I went to a market, one of these farmers market things in the south of Melbourne for I was away for a weekend. It was ninety percent Anglo. Mornington? Yes. Yep. They had a henna stall and I think I took photos, I can't find them now, but basically the henna stall was run by two blonde elderly middle aged women. 
<laughs> and, weekend, and all the photos were of other blonde women with henna by the beach or by by the ocean or by oh, a pool. No. For, and it was not a desi in sight. Oh no God. mention on the origins of henna or what it was for. And they were doing cornrows. They were doing cornrows and Mandy, which was henna, henna design, henna painting on people. And people were queuing up. And I, I was just like, I just walked in there and my mouth just dropped. Appropriation. Yeah, that is literally actually the best way to put appropriation. I'm glad you mentioned that because there's there's something that's been eating me up for a couple of days now. And, and I have this argument with Huda a lot, like when we watch TV shows. And what's that TV show? The Superstore? The Drugstore? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Superstore. Superstore. Oh, and, yeah, I've seen and, I haven't watched it. And there's not a single Indian funny. guy in that Superstore. And I'm like... Are you what kidding kind of me? That? Yeah, yeah, and that's what yeah. I I argue with her, and I'm like, I haven't had this argument. I agree with you. Yeah, but she says, which is a really good point. She says, like, when I come back from work, I want to watch things to relax, right? Yeah. And I said yes, but because of that, shows like that continuously get made where there's always an Indian stereotype or a diverse stereotype because that's easier to watch rather than watching a story that might be too close to heart which will make you think and which will make yeah, you yeah. uncomfortable and that's why most of the mainstream money goes That's what my daughter says as well. She won't watch any of that really hard-hitting stuff. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> very... I, I do watch it. I love that stuff. It's just that when I've had a big day and when I've used my brain a fair bit, I'm too tired to have to be more emotionally challenged. So... Yeah. For me, it's just easier to watch stuff blindly and just let it take me. Like Emily in Paris and like all oh those shows. God. Like I just well, get m- so triggered when I say. <laughs> Fuck Emily in Paris. <laughs> Emily can go. Oh. I haven't seen that one, but I think my daughter has, and she watches it with the same reason. And I'm like, um, no. Yeah. I can't. I just can't. I'll watch The Office. That's my big indulgence. I love The Office. I love it's The so Office. Good. I originally liked it because of The British Office. Because again, I oh love no, The American Office. Office. I like the American. But they did an amazing job with the American office. They I did. finished the whole season and I thought, like, how it's... they made it American. And it's because Mindy Kelling just came and refurbished the whole show. And I think she's a... I'm a bit conflicted about Mindy's role. Because she wasn't mm. as dominant as I, I as I thought she could have been. And she was really, apart from the Oscar, was the only, the only POC. And yeah, I'm there's like, no Asian or... Oh. There's a lot of problems with the office, if you think about <laughs> it. There's a lot of <laughs> racist <laughs> stuff in the office. It is a 17-year-old show. Again, you have to do the math right. And that's probably a lot of the reason why. I can't. I can't do that math because being an actor, I just, in this current world, it's very hard for me to think 17 years ago. And then because I watched the first episode yesterday because we watched the whole season, my son and I, we watched it together. It's our thing. And then we said, look, we've watched every episode now. It's 100 and whatever, 360 episodes. Let's start from the very beginning. And so we watched it and we looked at how young John Krasinski looked. And I thought, how, how old is this show? And we did the math and it was right. 17 years from now, 2012. Four. 2012 That's crazy. was the first episode. 20 years. Those sorts of shows that are just easy to watch, you just watch them and they let you, they take you away on a mindless journey. Those sorts of shows obviously get the most funding because they're the most popular ones because humans are so busy and Like so... Emily in fucking Paris. <laughs> My problem with that show, this name... Now I have to watch it. Yeah, watch it because watch they it. show Paris as this Eiffel Tower and romanticised, but most of fucking Paris is black. It's so yeah. hard to find a black person in that show. There's one, that's except, it. Except he's have playing you watched Lupin? Lupin. No. It's, on Netflix. it's about a, a black, Senegalese, French guy who becomes a artful robber he's just with Omar Sy oh yeah yeah I've heard it's about this show. amazing so good two seasons and it's just I love it's when a they do that getting into so I was saying to Sahil that I'm not in the industry so it's different for me whereas he's 
in the industry and he can see all of the problems. And I think I never saw it as an issue because, and it's not to say that there is no issue. Well, what is an issue? The lack of ethnic representation. Like oh, I think it's really? gotten okay. Well, as in what I mean is like I think it's gotten better. But what I was trying to say is that there, I know that there is inherently an issue, but like when you're watching those shows, you don't think of the issues. You don't think that, oh, this is an issue because of this. You don't, you, you're just watching it mindlessly. But what I said to him was, and I think that this is after a lot of analysis that I thought about this, I find that the reason I never consider it is because you will find a couple of ethnic people in it. Like you'll have your one brown guy, like, and by brown, I mean like in shows like The Office, or you'll have you know, the one black guy in Emily in Barris, and you'll have, like, an Asian person in the Superstore. Boxing recreation, et cetera, et cetera. And, right. and generally it will be to add a twist. Tick boxes. Because of the, the tokenistic little inserts of these characters and, and actors and stuff, you don't think that this is a problem because you're like, well, yeah, but they're doing it. You know, that person's in that show. They got you. That's how they get you. But that's why. Because I'm silent. Yeah. No, of course. And I agree with, I agree 100%. Yeah. I didn't think about it until I actually did the actual analysis of why I never considered it as a problem and thought, oh, we're progressing. Just someone brings it up, you don't see it. Funnily enough, I never considered it as a problem because you have your little tokens in them, which is really problematic. Then we hire diverse people for the sake of hiring them. How do you balance both merit and inclusivity? But then I also remember, well, there are a lot of white people in a job that they shouldn't be in. <laughs> so- exactly. That's a very good point. And I think this whole argument that when oh, when you start hiring with the, with the more diverse lens, you're going to compromise the sort of calibre of your staff. I think that's, that's a load of trod swallop. A hundred percent. Because... Again, that, that makes the assumption that the pre-existing talent are all so meritorious. Exactly. Yeah. So no, and we know that. I mean, we we know. We look at the year twelve results in, in most private schools and most public schools around the country. They're all brown kids. They're all Asian kids. They're all doing amazing. 100%. They're the ones going to uni. They're the ones getting the top results. So there's no lack or shortage of diverse talent coming out of Avery grad schools. They were there. It's just when it comes to hiring, there's this there's a barrier and that's what we need to sort of question and if we know that we're producing an enormous capital and talent in this country but we're not hiring it the fault lies on the recruitment processes and the inherent bias within organizations about hiring in their own image that's they're the same ones who point out oh but we don't want to be tokenistic it's like dude open up your recruiting processes that's what your limitations are there's no shortage of people who could apply and then as soon as you start doing application processes which have blind recruitment techniques like you cover the name you cover the gender suddenly lo and behold things start diversifying and the data is there to back it up i actually can say that this is a thing because so i've got a really close girlfriend and she's got a very white name and her resume and my resume is almost identical because we've pretty much grown up together done all the same things together and if anything I've you know I've had a lot more like volunteer experience and all that sort of stuff right because I've got to overcompensate if I want to make it and so I find that even if we were to apply for jobs it may not be the exact same job but if we were to apply for jobs at the exact same time she's highly likely to get way more interviews than I ever will because of my name. I actually used her resume because I thought my resume was shit because I'm like, I'm like maybe my resume is just crap. Yeah. And again, there have been studies done, I think, I don't know if it was um, Western Sydney University but or ANU, but they, they did surveys where they actually 
supplied CVs for positions which were exactly the same and they just changed the names. And overwhelmingly, those with an Arab or Chinese or Muslim-sounding name were having to apply three to four times more than an Anglo name. Like, that's just proven. So I, mean, I, have, I wish I had the stats with me. I didn't know you were going to ask me this question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it just kind of came up. But it's, it's, an entirely valid, it's an entirely valid criticism of the way that businesses operate and, and why the workplaces that we have are so lacking in that yeah. diversity. The one thing I did want to talk about right yeah, sure. at the end and wrap up with is kind of looking at the other side again, because I don't want it to be like, oh, uh, you know, the system needs to open up to diverse people. But at the same time, when I go back to India, even in India, a fairer person, a white person still gets preference. How the fuck can I complain when the same thing is happening? Even Within our and, own communities. Yeah. And when I was, I kid you not, when I went to Bombay to audition for Bollywood, there were like castings that came up on WhatsApp that literally said, extremely good looking person must be fair extremely fair looking people yeah. or if it was a poor person it was a darker looking person yeah. yeah so so before i always feel like before i point a finger at someone else like it's not like my community is doing it any better because we are inherently as racist colorist yeah or discriminatory so mm. knowing that how do you tackle both of them or like do you keep that in mind that you know that happens oh, in yeah. basic communities oh, yeah, yeah, as well yeah. It's otherwise it becomes hypocritical, right? Mm-hmm. So you, I, I acknowledge the diversity or the lack of diversity, you're right, that, that broader society, you know, is, is symptomatic of in so many ways. But internally, I see it all the time, especially as, as, a, as a woman. You know, you're always told if you, you know, if you want to be, get married, you've got to be fairer, you've got a much higher chance. That's and, so true. Um, you've got to be educated, you've got to preferably be a doctor, a doctor or a lawyer. And I did an arts degree, so <laughs> it was rough going. But yeah, that, that is inherently there and I see it and I first to bring it up and I mean I've had even subtle conversations after the Black Lives Matter movement on WhatsApp as you do with family members about something that came up and I think I had some cousins abroad who scattered between like most Desi families between the UK and the Middle East and America and Europe and we just made a comment about oh yeah it's so tragic what's happening but and one cousin made a comment on the side but let's face it if one of our children were to come home with a, you know with a black fellow we'd all be very concerned and she was honest about it and i just like i'm glad she said what i knew they were thinking but i just went and i said there is no way i would be disappointed i would be thrilled if that yeah. happened mm-hmm. with my kids you know if they you know decided to bring home a black partner i'd be like how how are you having this comp-? and they're all educated people educated intelligent people who are having these conversations which shows you that that degree of I wouldn't say prejudice. Maybe it's that learned behaviour. I call them the colonial scars. Yes, that's literally what we... Any prejudice colonised by the UK just has standards of beauty that are so inherently drawn in whiteness. And I think with India, it's doubly so because of the caste system as well, that just amplifies it, right? And and then you've got communities and families who inherit this bias and they don't even see it, where the origin of it comes from. And they're happily living in the East, they're happily living in the West happily know that they're also having to work, like you say, having to overcompensate for their skills and be the best pharmacist and the best lawyers and the best doctors because it's so competitive. And yet they'll harbour these views of internal racism. Um, and to me, it's highly problematic. And it's draw a lens on this, people. Draw a lens on it. Where's your humanity? And this is coming from people who, like mine, who are fifth generation from East Africa. Yeah. Africa. How can you have these views? But they do. Yeah. They do. And it's very disappointing. It is disappointing, yeah. And I, yeah, I, if, I, mean, if, I, I see it, I call it out, and I'm, I'm very open at home with my kids, they know it, that, like, you know, it's, 
there's no colour spectrum here. It's everyone's, it's a free-for-all. Yeah. Regarding inclusivity, how do we decide what's inclusive and what's not? You know, when we're discriminating against one thing, we're kind of discriminating across the board. So I guess how do we almost pick or can we pick or should we be picking the one thing that we're fighting for and why is it, you know, how can we make it so that we understand there are other other aspects of discrimination that exist as well? I think it's a really subjective thing. If somebody might be very passionate about their LGBTQ rights, for example, because they have a family member who's come out and they just, they don't want them to experience discrimination in a hard life. So they'll go out and they'll champion the issue and it becomes a subjective battle for them. But their colleague at work may have no connection, so it doesn't see it that way. For me, it's, it's really about respecting everyone's right to manifest their truth and manifest what they value. As long as it's not impinging on your ability to live safely, to be discriminated back, meet at a point with self-respect, of respecting each other rather, and say, you have your view, I have my view. We're not going to necessarily see eye to eye on this, but as long as you're not impacting my life and my ability to do what I need to to live safely, that's fine. I think that's one way of looking at it, and I agree with that. The problem is also that we see it as, you know, if you're trying to tell someone, especially when it comes to inclusivity and lack thereof discrimination, we're trying to give everyone an equal right. I think sometimes I find it really difficult to go, okay, well, I'm being told that I've got these views that are somehow extreme, even Mm -hmm. though like I don't see them as extreme. I see it as if anything, they're like the complete opposite because I'm saying that everyone deserves a form of equality, even if they're different to us to the point where they're so different, they're like another species. So I think that like, you know, when we talk about stuff like, oh, you know, pushing your agenda onto others, I think it's the same as anyone going, well, you should be more inclusive. And that seems like I'm pushing an agenda when really all I'm saying is, let's all just open up. I agree. It's it's a fine line. It's maybe inclusive isn't the word we should be using. It's Mm. I'm accepting of your views, Mm -hmm. but I don't agree with them. Final question. According to you, what does a diverse and inclusive society look like in the next however many years? Like how, how do you think, what would be the ideal world? I guess a workplace where someone, a person of colour, thinks of applying to work for without at any point in that process feeling they have to small themselves, Mm -hmm. whether it's change their name, sound more Aussie, modify their CV or reassure their employer that their ethnicity will not be an impediment to the job, which is an exact line I used in an interview once. Mm -hmm. I just want to reassure you that my staff will not be an impediment to my role. And they just looked at me like I was crazy, like we didn't think it would be. But I just felt this need to it just just in case. Yes. So a perfect world will be when we don't have to, we don't have to attend a particular prospective job with any of those limitations, sort of limitations in our mind. Because we see ourselves already reflected in the way an organisation looks. Mm-hmm. You know, you do your search, you see who's on the board, uh, you do a Google search, you see who's on the team, and, you, and you'll see it's populated with, you know, diversity and intersectional representation of people. And you think, oh, this is a really inclusive workplace because anyone can work here from any particular background as long as they've got the competencies. And so, yeah, an inclusive world will be one in which your competencies are assessed and not your external, I guess, the peripheries. Mm-hmm. On that note, uh, <laughs> Tasname? Tasname? Jasmine. Jasmine. That works better for me. Call me Jazz. Call me Jazza. But thank you so <laughs> thank much. Thank you so much, Tasname. But it was an absolute <laughs> pleasure having you. I think it'll be amazing to someday have you in person as well and, you know, actually see you in flesh. But uh, thank you for 
taking out the time, and I hope uh, you have some minutes before you go. I know. Yeah. I do. It's all good. It's all very casual. Yeah. Thank you very much. This was probably the most robust and fun podcasty thing that I've done in a long time, and it's just I think it's a great platform that you guys are using. Very meaty, very no, no, meaty no. conversations. Really. Thank like, you. Wow. All right, Steve, we need to go now. All right. We have a meeting at twelve. Get ready. <laughs> Right. Thank you. Hey guys, bye love bye. to meet you. I love bye you bye. to meet you too. See ya.